This week on Myths and Legends, we continue our trek through the Mabinogian from Welsh folklore, and you'll see why friends are family, and how that can literally be the case if you convince your best friend to marry your mom. The creature this week is a giant beaver lizard who can turn invisible and has some very particular music tastes. This is Myths and Legends, episode 206, The Blip. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. We are back in the stories of the Mabinogian, the Welsh epic that is basically just a handful of very loosely connected stories. If you haven't listened to episodes 181A and B, and don't want those spoiled for you right now, you're going to want to go back and listen to those. Basically, though, we're in Wales, a country on the western side of Great Britain, in maybe the 11th century AD. In one of the bigger kingdoms, a young man by the name of Prederi rules. He's one of those magical babies of destiny, and I think the only character to make an appearance in all four branches of the Mabinogian. Regardless, he's getting back from a completely preventable, yet absolutely devastating war against the Irish, where only seven of the Welsh warriors remained, and five pregnant Irish women remained. If you want to listen to that whole incredible saga, once again, check out episodes 181A and B. But all you need to know right now is that Prideri is on the way home from the war. After an 87-year pit stop, also don't worry about that, and he has something he wants to ask his friend. So, uh, pretty crazy war, huh? Prideri said to his friend, Mana Whitman, brother of Brian the Blessed, who was now the rightful king of England. Manawithan stared back at the ship, at the other five guys returning home from the war. The only other five guys, actually, so seven in all, after the nation had mobilized against Ireland. Yeah, crazy was one word for it. Prideri turned square to face his friend. So I was thinking, since we're buddies and all, want to marry my mom? Manawithan whipped around. Do what now? Prideri said that he knew that sounded weird, but he wanted to cement his alliance with the largest part of Great Britain. And what better way to do that than marrying off his own mother? Look, he continued, shock factor aside, he didn't have any kids yet, and he was one of those supernatural babies that grew up really fast, so he and his mom were almost the same age now. Mena Whitman thought about it. When Prideri put it like that, sure, it still sounded weird, but less so. Plus, he had been away for a while and didn't have any other prospects. Sure, I'll marry your mom. You will not be disappointed with her looks, let me tell you, Prideri said as they docked. Yeah, please don't, Menowith then said, as both men and the other survivors of the war, remember, just seven guys in total, exited the boat. was an eventful feast, to say the least. Prideri embraced his wife and informed his mom that he had married her off because I guess he could do that. The pair got along well, and 
not wasting any time, it's said that, by the end of the feast, they'd already consummated the marriage. The pair of couples, Praderi and Kikwa, and Manawitan and Rhiannon, became fast friends. I mean, they were family now, and it apparently wasn't weird for Praderi that his war buddy had become his new dad. So they toured Wales together, stopping off at this kingdom and that fortress, and soon they had arrived back home. Praderi ruled from his father's throne, and his mom was married to his best friend. They had survived the war, and their homeland was safe. Everything was right with the world. It was a nice night for an apocalypse. The big four had attended a feast and collectively decided that it was time to go get some fresh air. Since Praderi was the king, wherever he went, the party followed. And soon they found themselves atop the mound at Gorseth Arbeth, looking out across the homes of their kingdom. Fires at the hearths, animals snug in their barns. Everything was at peace. Then, the flash. The four were sitting on the mound when a flash of lightning lit up the sky, followed by a rumble all around. A mist billowed around them, and the two couples scrambled to find each other, clasping hands amid the confusion. They didn't notice the silence until after the mist had cleared. Their retinue was no more. They were alone on top of the hill. Praderi looked out across the land again, not on barns and homes and hearths, but on a vast nothing. Before them stretched a darkened field, shadowed by night, with only the moonlight shaping the horizon. Both couples rose, ditching their goblets, and made their way back home to the castle, the only building left as far as they could see. But it, too, stood empty. There were no people, no animals. Everyone and everything had vanished. Unfortunately, the morning only confirmed what the night hinted. The four of them, they were alone. Praderi said to send word to England, see if it happened there. But Manawitan said, with what messengers? Everyone was gone. They could go to England themselves, but the horses and livestock were also gone, so they would have to go on foot. And what if all this was, he didn't know, an illusion? What if they wanted the king to leave his castle. No, they should stay. They could hold out and look after themselves, despite this wasteland. And they did. There was a learning curve to living without servants, but Praderi took the lead. He'd been raised by farmers back in the day anyway, and before long, they were building their own fires and farming their own food, living in the quiet, darkened castle, and wondering what on earth had happened to their home. That's not to say this wasn't a hard life, though. Without beasts of burden or servants, the little group had to do every bit of everything themselves. From chopping wood to plowing the fields, the tools were gone too, so the group crafted flimsy tools out of wood and stones. A year passed like this. Then too, their life on the newly created frontier, the wasteland, became the new normal. Still, the more they thought about the whole situation, the more they worried. What if this was Wales? Forever. 
They knew how to take care of themselves, but only barely. They didn't have deluxe tools. I mean, they didn't even have doctors. What if one of them got sick or hurt? All the what-ifs and unknowns came to a head, and eventually, they unanimously knew what they must do. And so, in early summer, they left. Walking eight hours a day, they could reach England within a week or two. That is, if there was any England left to reach. If the strange curse hadn't turned the whole world into a great big nothing. Well, it hadn't. It was only Wales, the group realized. At the sight of the first outsider they'd encountered in two years, the lonely big four rushed to her in a hot mess of tears and elation. And naturally, she ran screaming back to her town. Following her all the way, the four Welsh royalty marveled at the town. And the people, the people were everywhere. It was magnificent. The first stop was at a merchant to buy new clothes. Theirs were pretty much threadbare after two years in the wilderness. But soon they realized that they didn't have any money. The curse had taken that, too. And they hadn't needed it for years. Perderi considered marching up to the local representative of the king but understood just how mad that would look, showing up at the local fort in rags, ranting about how he was royalty, and the governor should let him in and give him money. Yeah, there was really only one option. They had to get jobs. It wasn't a bad gig. Manowit then had some past experience in leatherworking. So he started as the local saddler's apprentice. There was a special technique he'd learned from one of the late warriors in Ireland, where he could color the seats and pommels in a striking shade of blue. Well, they started flying off the racks. And it wasn't long before Manowit then had saved up enough to open a store of his own. While he was in town, no one bought a single saddle from any other saddler. It was awesome, if you weren't a saddler. Across the region, saddle makers had an understanding about price and quality. Everyone had their customers, and no one pulled too far ahead. It worked, until Manawithan. One day, one of Manawithan's apprentices talked to another apprentice from a competing shop, and when he returned, bad news clouded his face. He was leaving, he announced. He had loved working for Manawithan, truly. But he loved life even more. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't the hours. It wasn't like work-life balance. It was actually living, like being alive. That night, the other saddlers were going to come and kill Manawithan because he was just too good at his job. In a heated discussion, Manawithan shared the situation with Rhiannon and Praderi who both argued showing these churls who's boss. But Manawithan thought that, while they could probably manage to kill a bunch of angry saddlers, killing a bunch of locals likely wouldn't go over too well with the other locals. So, the invisible hand on their throats, the big four escaped into the night, ahead of the mob, and traveled to the next town over. When you got it, you got it. And Prideri and Minowithan, well, they had it. Getting away from saddles, at 
the next town over, they set up a shop crafting shields. Neither of them knew how to make shields. They had used a lot of them, but it never dawned on the pair that they might be anything less than super awesome shield makers until they found that they had become super awesome shield makers. Again, angry local crafters banded together and as opposed to rising to meet the quality and craftsmanship of the new guys, they found it easier to simply organize a mob and kill the competition. I don't know, I can't help it. I'm just awesome, Pradari said, looking at the perfectly stitched shoe. They had sourced Cordovian leather. They worked with goldsmiths to make buckles. Pradari and Menowithin couldn't be mediocre if their lives depended on it. And their lives depended on it. Soon, their shoes were so nice that no one was buying shoes from any other cobbler. And the pair, once again, began hearing death threats from all the local cobblers. Can't you just, I don't know, phone it in? Their wives asked and not offer great quality shoes at competitive prices, Pradari spat. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, well, because you two can't not be awesome, we can't stay here. You've alienated yourselves from every town, like all the towns, the women said. We have to go home. This was all true. And so the group fled town, once again, before the angry mob of cobblers came for them. This time, however, they were able to take horses they'd earned since arriving in England, and they rode for home. Back in Deved, Pradari's kingdom, it became clear that Wales hadn't changed much. There were animals now, sure, but still no people. Open and bountiful, the unoccupied land had appealed to animals of many kinds, and they had quickly spread across the countryside, prime for hunting. With their new horses and a dozen or so hounds picked up before leaving England, the big four stopped in Divid, built some homes for themselves, and decided that this place was agreeable. They stayed for another year. We'll witness Pradari and company continuing to make questionable choices, but that will be read right after this. One morning, out hunting, Pradari and Manawithin parted some branches and looked at each other. Did either of them remember that being there? Ahead stood a fort, in a place that once held nothing at all. Now, everywhere else was wilderness, but this place was a fort. The gate was open too, and Pradari watched as his hounds chased the boar they had been following, directly into the fort. Welp! Manowithin said as he put his bow away. They were good dogs. Now they're dead. Pradari stood. No, they weren't. They just went into that mysterious magical fort. And he was going in after them. Okay, and um, you're hearing yourself. A mystical, magical pop-up fort. One that probably appeared back when everything else disappeared. And you want to go inside, like... I'm not even being genre savvy here, 
This is a certified terrible idea. Our land was destroyed by magic, and you want to walk into an obvious trap? <laughs> if the trap is so obvious, Pradari said, then they can't expect that I'd actually go into it, which makes the unexpected thing me actually going into the fort and walking into the trap. Pradari tapped his temple with a smirk. With that, he rose and made his way toward the fort. Manawai then tried to stop him, but he didn't want to expose both of them or call out in the event that someone wasn't watching. So he could do nothing but watch Pradari as the king walked into the unknown. Five hours later, when the sun was going down and Pradari still hadn't emerged from the fort, Manawai then decided to head back home. You mean to say that your best friend, and I guess also stepson, wandered into a mysterious-looking magical fort and you just let him? And when he didn't come out for hours on end, you didn't go in after him but just came back? Rhiannon asked. When you say it with that tone, it sounds bad, Manawai then said, eyes focused on the ground. When you say it with any tone, it sounds bad, because it's bad, Rhiannon said, eyes rolling. Fine, forget about it. At first light, she would set out for the fort and get her son back. And she did. Well, she set out for the fort, at least, like Manawai then and Pradari. She found the fort in a land that had once been wilderness, and, like her son, she approached it. When she entered, all was dark. It wasn't dusty, it wasn't anything else, just dark. Light filtered in from the high windows, showing a polished floor. The place was completely empty, except for the bowl. There, in the center of the room, a golden bowl sat on a pedestal, and Prideri stood touching it. Pradari, what are you doing here? Let's go, she said, grabbing his shoulder. But he didn't move. He was frozen in place, still looking at the bowl. She shook her son. Hey, snap out of it. You spent the night standing up touching a bowl. Let's go. But Pradari didn't respond. She could see him breathing and his body was warm. Both good signs. He was alive, just not responding. Put the bowl down and let's go, she said, slapping the golden bowl. But as soon as her first finger touched the bowl, Rhiannon realized why her son hadn't responded. Like him, her hand was now stuck to the bowl, her feet plastered to the ground, body frozen in place, and ability to speak gone. Ah, shoot. Right, mysterious magical fort, Rhiannon thought to herself. Well, this was an unwelcome development. Still, her husband would be by soon. Manawithan would figure something out. He wouldn't just leave them. Oh, me? Yeah, I'm leaving, Manawithan said to Kikwa. Leaving, Kikwa replied. Yeah, those two disappeared into a mysterious magical fort. It's been over a week. They're not coming back and whatever happened around here is beyond my ability. Time to cut and run. You with me? Kikva paused. On one hand, she had promised to always be faithful to Pradari. But on the other hand, 
Scary fortresses were scary. Back to England? Back to England, Manawithan declared. And they went back to England. Refusing to live in poverty, Manawithan once again booted up his shop. And once again, Manawithan refused to do a mediocre job. Within a month, he and Kikva found themselves being chased out of England again. Since there were only two locations in the world, apparently, Manawithan and Kigfa fled back to the still desolate Dyfed in Wales. There, the two friends lived in plenty. He fished and caught wild animals. She improved their home and made a place to live. Then, they started planting. It went well, at first, and Manawithan planted a few fields for them to harvest in the fall. As the year went on, one autumn night, Manawithan said to himself, that he would harvest that field. Aw, thanks for harvesting that whole field by yourself, Manawithan said the following morning. Quick and quiet, too. But Kikva said that she had not. Manawithan gestured to the field. Then, who did? They were the only two people in this entire country. She shrugged. All day, he searched for footprints and any sign of a thief, but there were none. He looked at the next field. All right, well, that was weird. Tomorrow, he would harvest this one. But the next morning, the second field was also already harvested. Whoever had done it had cut the plantings down to their bare stalks. Menowit then turned to the third field. He would be a fool not to stay up and keep watch. So, that's exactly what he did. He took a chair, built a fire, and waited. That was when he heard the rumble. He glanced around in a panic. It sounded like an army. And it was one. All around, in squeaks and scratches, an army of mice climbed the stalks and took away the ears, leaving the field exactly as Manawithan had found the others. Shaking off his astonishment, Manawithan sprang from his chair and rushed into the field, swinging his sword. But, I mean, he was no more likely to hit one of the mice than he was to hit a bird or a gnat. They're mice. They scurried off with their stolen bounty, slipping through his fingers. That is, all but one. Panting, Manawithan sheathed his sword and noticed a mouse that was panting almost as much as he was. It was a larger mouse, not one quite as quick as the others, and though it ran, Manawithan quickly caught it, pulled off his glove, and plopped the little thief inside. That morning, Kikva rose early. She'd heard, I guess, her stepdad working in the other room. She emerged to find him putting the finishing touches on a craft project. Why are you building a tiny gallows? She asked. And he was. He had spent all night with the hot glue gun and some glitter because, once again, he didn't do things halfway and you wanted it to look nice. He gestured to his glove, tied off, so the mouse wouldn't escape. He caught the thief, well, one of them, and Manawithan would hang it as an example to the rest of them. You, you're gonna hang a small, fat mouse on a fabulous gallows you stayed up all night making? Kikva asked as she looked at the glove. You, you doing all right? Making a tiny gallows to hang a mouse as a warning to all the other mice, I mean, it, it wasn't a normal and healthy place to be. 
but Manawithin was all in by now. He said he should hang all the mice, if he had any honor. This is what you invest your time into, but not finding and rescuing our spouses? Kikva asked, and with a big wave of her hands, she went to get ready for the day. Manawithin saw the dust on the road, long before he saw the cleric. It was a sight he had seen a lot in the old days, but one that now made him fully stop the rodent execution he was engaged in, and look in awe to the road. Good day, the cleric said as he passed by. Good, good day? Manawithin replied before asking the man if he was just going to walk by like that. What was he doing here? The cleric stopped. Oh, he had been singing in England. Why? Manawithin asked if he had noticed the nothing and no one since he entered Wales. The cleric nodded. Yeah, I guess now that the stranger mentioned it, the country did seem a little bit completely abandoned. Well, that was until now, meeting Manawithin engaged in... What was going on here? Manawithin stepped aside, revealing the tiny gallows, complete with a trap door. There stood the large mouse, paws bound, and the cord around its neck. Manowit then explained that he was simply executing a thief in accordance with the law. The cleric grimaced. The stranger was royalty, right? Manowit then nodded. The cleric shared that it was unseemly for a man of his status to handle rodents. Just let it go. This was weird. The cleric fished through his pack and produced a pound. Here, he would buy the mouse off Manawithin, so the prince could save face, and put an end to all this ridiculousness. But Manawithin shook his head. No, 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 this mouse would hang for its crimes. Manawithin would neither sell it, nor pardon it. Good day, sir. I, I just really think you should reconsider. It's unseemly for a man of your station to be- I said good day, Manawithin barked and the cleric promptly nodded and continued on his way. Alone once more, Manawit then resumed his completely normal and good execution, but before he could pull the lever on that tiny trapdoor, another man came by. It was a priest, who also thought it unseemly that a prince should hang a mouse. He offered three pounds for the mouse, and after him came a bishop with his entourage, baggage, and retinue. The bishop asked what the man was doing, and Manawith then held up a finger, turned, and pulled the little lever. The trap door flew open, and the mouse lurched. The creature's weight wasn't enough to kill it with a single drop. So, so like the character on an episode a few weeks back, it was condemned to slowly strangle at the end of the rope. You were saying? Manawith then asked, turning to the bishop. The man was staring nervously at the mouse. The bishop ran through what the other two men had said. It seemed unseemly that a prince should touch a mouse, he should release it, the bishop would pay, and Manawith then replied, as he had the last two times. No. Surprisingly, the bishop upped his offer of seven pounds to twenty-four pounds immediately, and Manawith then ignored him, watching the mouse dangle instead. I will give you every horse you see on this plane, the bishop insisted pointing back to all of his horses and all of their baggage, which would be included in the deal. No, Manawithin said again, studying the mouse. Won't be long now. Name your price, 
the bishop screamed, running his fingers through his hair and quite unable to stand still. The release of Rianan and Praderi, the man said. The bishop narrowed his eyes. Fine. Now let the mouse go. I'm not done, Manobut then continued, finally turning to face the bishop. He wanted their release and the removal of the magic from the seven cantrips of Defid, the kingdom of this part of Wales. Then, and only then, could he have the mouse. Fine, the bishop screamed. Just cut her down. Her? Manowithin remarked. Hmm. He took a knife, and with a small clip, the mouse flopped onto the dirt. The bishop held out both hands. Give her to me. Manowithin picked up the mouse again. Soon enough, he told the bishop. But first, some answers. Who is she, who are you, and why did you do this to their home? The bishop grinned and transformed before Manowithin's eyes. He no longer looked like an English bishop, but one of them. A king, a wizard. He was Lewid, son of Kilcoid, he announced, and he had done it. He had placed the enchantment on the kingdoms of Dyfed, and he had done it for Gwawl, he continued, beaming. Manowithin finished removing the threat from the mouse's neck. Who? The wizard spun around to make his announcement again. Gwawl. Manowithin said that he was new in town. Relatively. He'd been in town for like seven years, actually. But culturally, not a lot had been going on. So who was that supposed to be? The wizard swore loud. Manowithin had ruined his big reveal. Gwawl. You know, the guy who almost tricked his way into marrying Rhiannon last episode? but then Praderi's dad tricked him into playing Badger in the Bag? Remember? Oh, that I know. That hilarious game where we put badgers in bags and then beat them. Good times, Manowithin said. Yeah, well, they put my friend in a bag and beat him, all because he wanted to marry Rhiannon. I just couldn't let that happen. Why didn't Gwawl show up after Praderi's dad died? Like, she was very publicly single for a long time. Manowithin asked. <laughs> Not anymore, though. She ended up marrying one of her son's friends. Ew, Manowithin. Well, whatever. You all have been suitably chastened, and I just want my wife back, so please give me the mouse. The wizard said, hands outstretched. Awful judgy for a guy who married a mouse, Manowithin said. She wasn't in the form of a mouse when I married her, the wizard informed him. I can't believe you cursed this whole land for seven years because your friend got beat up. Don't marry people without their consent. Problem solved. And I would have gotten away with it too, if not for this pesky mouse hanging that, that doesn't work as well. After a little more back and forth, in which Manowithin got the pledge that the magician would never curse whales again, and he and Gua would bear no ill will against Praderi, Rhiannon, Kikva, or himself, Manawai then demanded to see Praderi and Rhiannon before he would give the wizard back his wife. Reluctantly, the wizard agreed. And soon, Manawai then saw the pair running down the road toward him. Manawai then tossed the mouse to the wizard and ran to his wife and stepson slash best friend. After a long embrace, they parted. And the moment they did, it was all back. Homes and farms dotted the horizon and townspeople bustled along the roads. Everything resumed exactly as it had been on that fateful night long ago. Wales was back. From that point on, 
both reunited couples lived in peace and happiness, and Pradari ruled as a magnanimous king. He even made peace with the fairy realms, believe it or not, and so it was that Pradari, the young man who had grown up in uncertainty, lost his generation to war, came home to a wasteland, and spent years as a wizard's captive, finally had a chance to live in peace. For, like, one year. will be for next time, though, when we tell the story from the fourth branch and wrap up the main part of the Mabinogian. Next week, we're getting back into the saga of the Monkey King and the Monk as they continue their journey to the West and learn that the real quest is the giant, sleazy, smelly pig friends you make along the way. If you'd like to support the show, there's a membership thing on the site where you can get bonus episodes and ad-free versions of the show. Looking for something more? Maybe a t-shirt, poster, stickers, something original? Check out all the swag and find out more about membership at mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Afank from Welsh folklore. The Afank is a giant beaver, but don't allow that to cause you to let your guard down because it can turn invisible, shoot poison darts, and it has the head of a reptile. It lives in freshwater lakes and, oh yeah, hates swimmers and will kill them the first chance it gets. I would say that's a little extreme, but if you think about it in terms of having a bunch of uninvited, half-naked strangers jumping around your house all the time, I'm not saying it's justified, but I get it. Tired of being straight up murdered every time they wanted to swim, the people of Wales discovered, through some manner of magic, that the Afanc could be lulled to sleep by the singing of a virgin. One brave woman volunteered, and the party set off for the lakeshore. And it worked. The woman sat on the beach, singing, and as if pulled by some magical force, the creature rose from the water, lumbered over to her lap, and settled in for a nice, relaxing sleep. The men of the village took the opportunity to grab the giant lizard beaver monster and bind it. And if you're thinking, Maybe wait until the woman who put her life on the line is out from under the beast before doing that. You're giving this way more thought than those guys did. She was killed instantly from the thrashing. In this version, the story is over. They dragged it away and killed it. In another version, it was slain by Percival, the knight of King Arthur's court that I promise we're getting back to very soon. It's been way too long. Anyway, before he went searching for the Holy Grail, he was wondering why a monster arrived at a castle, challenged, and killed three king's sons every day, only to have them resurrected by the maidens of the castle every morning. Percival, needing no motivation other than because that thing exists and I have a sword and want to kill it, decided to kill it. He rode out on his own, and after a magical rock given to him by the Queen of Constantinople, who was just hanging around in Britain, over a thousand miles from home, Percival used the stone to see the creature long enough to cut its head off. He returned home not to fanfare and celebration, but to the three princes, saying that, yeah, there had been a prophecy stating that a guy named Percival would come and kill the monster. I guess they didn't want to tell him and jinx it. The moral here is, if killing monsters is your job, go out and kill some monsters. But if someone asks you to volunteer to have a monster sleep in your lap... 
you might want to pass on that one. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? You should really check out BetterHelp. They assess your needs to match you with your own professional, licensed therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. Visit BetterHelp.com myths. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Myths and Legends listeners get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com myths. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.